podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, the show that brings you untapped business ideas from successful entrepreneurs. My name is Chris Justin, and I'm here with Ethan Jenny. Ethan, how's it going today? It's going well. I'm doing a little bit of HelloFresh. I uh, took advantage of a rebate and probably will cancel that for a couple of weeks. That does not mean that the food has not been delicious. It's just not for my budget. Cookie Unity actually delivered their food. I know we talked about that last time. FedEx has just been horrible for me. So I have my meals planned for the week and I am ecstatic to have that in place. Let's not forget our our unofficial official sponsor is Territory Foods, who uh, <laughs> who will also deliver your food, which are a couple of friends of mine founded that business. But yeah, we have a we have an interesting guest here on the show today, um, Dave Chesson. He has founded up to or I don't know he runs at least seven businesses, uh, so he definitely. Either he does have time for this business idea because he's so organized, or he definitely doesn't. Um, but there's an issue there with what he has on his plate. <laughs> he's the creator of Kindlepreneur. That's a website devoted to teaching advanced book marketing. And Amazon itself refers authors to that site for insights to optimize their book marketing. He's also created software products like Atticus.io and Publisher Rocket to help both in the marketing and editing production of books. And again, that's just a, a few of the things he's up to. But today he's here to talk to us about an interesting social media conundrum, a business idea around finding out whether people have unliked you on Facebook. Unfriended you, Ethan. You're so, you're so disconnected oh. from the Facebook world. Oh. You don't even know the terminology. Dave, you seem like a super affable guy. I'm kind of curious, why would anyone unfriend you on Facebook? <laughs> well, there's so much division, I think, on social media. And I, I'm not a very opinionated person. Matter of fact, I just keep social, social, you know, social media, social. And I don't like to post a lot of that. But there was a time where a picture was taken and I was tagged in it. And I, that person that I was with might have been in a political area. And I kind of said to myself, you know what? I'll bet you my friend, number of friends are going to drop just because I'm in the picture with this person. And so I checked and I, I had to physically look at the number of people that were my friends. And then the next day I checked and sure enough, there were six less people. You got to be careful when you take selfies with Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, well, and it, it's, it's funny is, is that we're now in an age where it could be somebody super amazing and awesome, but there's something out there, you know, you, you know, or you're standing in front of a building that you had no idea was made by somebody who was a terrible person. Like I, there's a lot of ways you can get in trouble in social media. And so I always thought about it, you know, I have some friends and I have some family members who really enjoy stirring the pot. And I'll bet you those guys would love to know, all right, how many people am I going to get to unfriend me today? You know, and so <laughs> actually to purposely do it, that's like a instead of tracking how many people are your friends, how many people have I officially filtered out of my That's friends. right. So like on purpose. Exactly. Now, so I started really thinking about this and I said, you know, you could do it at a personal level where you develop and it would be very simple. You could just create a Chrome plugin that all it needs to do is when you go to Facebook, it checks your friend number 
and it maybe indexes who is your friends based off of Facebook. Then the next time you log in, it will check again. And it will not only check to see what your number of total friends is, but then it would check to see who is there. And then it would look at yesterday's as compared to today's. And it could tell you, hey, these six people unfriended you. Now, that probably by itself, if you just sold that little plugin or something like that, probably would do pretty well. You probably get your return on investment depending on your development costs, but you should be able to recover that pretty quickly. I want to dig into that right there because yeah, you have started these seven different businesses, you're running them. You probably have a pretty good sense of what will work and what won't work. And you're saying this, that it'll probably work from an outsider's perspective who doesn't use Facebook a ton. I can't imagine ever paying for this. And it's hard for me to get a sense to know anyone who would pay for this. Uh, What makes you say that it probably would work? So this is We're going to jump ahead to the reason why I haven't done it. See, I, I own a one-third stake in a software development company, and creating something like this would be pretty simple. I just get one or two of my programmers just to go off on the side project. I'm actually building a bourbon hunter just for fun. We're going to have a program that helps me to find rare bourbons and get them for me. Uh, so, I mean, I've done that before. The thing is, the reason why I won't do this particular project is because I don't have any following that's in the social media world. I'm not blogging, or I don't have an email list of people who care to learn more about social media or Facebook or Facebook tactics. Therefore, if I were to create this, I would really have to roll up the sleeves and do a lot of legwork to go find people to do it. I think that this business idea is phenomenal for somebody who's either in the ad agency world, or, you know, who is running a Facebook agency, you know, ads agency, or somebody who's blogging about social media, or who's an social media influencer, if you're in the political realm or something like that, you know, this would be extremely easy because you already have the following. Let's pretend you are a, I'm not saying left wing or right wing, you're a wing in politics, okay, and you say a lot of excitable things, okay, you probably have a lot of people who feel just as vehement as you. They're probably on social media. And boy, wouldn't it be cool if they could maybe pay five bucks and be able to figure out, you know, which post caused this many people to leave or, you know, hey, I got rid of my other side friends because of this. See, I mean, just that one marketing email, you'd probably recover all of your costs right from the get go. That's just a political agitation type following. Now let's go over to, say, someone who is a ads agency. How cool would this be, even just as like an email signup tool? Hey, come on over here and download this free plugin, you know, and give us your email. Well, clearly these people care about their social media, right? This might be a very good lead for your agency. But even more so is you could even take this kind of idea a step further if you're an ad agency and you could have your clients install this and so that it will pass information on hey, we were analyzing your posts and we found out that when you talked about vacationing, you had the most people sign up and follow you or whatever. Or, hey, when you posted that picture next to this person, you lost like 37 people. And it can be a great idea to understand when you do this, you gain fans. When you do this, you lose fans. And it can be very educational. That could also be really good for your marketing efforts. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Facebook marketing analytics. They can do a lot now to tell you, like, what are the demographics of the people that are liking your posts and and things like that. So you could also do that, right, to be more specific about the the individuals that are unfollowing or following. 
in this case, we're talking about unfollowing. Mm -hmm. What's the demographic? Are they people that you didn't mind losing? Or is that exactly the type of person that you were hoping was in your domain and all of a sudden you lost them? So you don't want to go into this particular territory. A sense of scale here. I just looked up the number of influencers on Facebook. That's 30 seconds of Google research. The answer is 3.3 million. Might not be completely accurate, but that's a sizable market. How much do you think in terms of time and money it would cost to build this? Hmm. Well, I mean, creating like, if you just kept it at the scope of a Chrome plugin that would check to see how many friends you have and index which, which ones the friends are, cache it, and then check it upon the next day and create a quick list of who, I can only imagine maybe is, you know, depending on where you find the programmer, you're looking at hundreds, if not a couple thousand dollars, and that's it. You know, if you're taking that project beyond where now you're analyzing which posts and trying to look at the demographics or pull even further data um, and create kind of reports from it, you could be getting the tens of thousands at that point. I think it's a good time to bring in some of the competitors that we found here and doing some research. One that comes to mind is Mass Friends Deleter. It is a Chrome extension and it's not doing exactly what you're describing. It, it's a way to easily manage your list of friends and delete irrelevant ones. Scott, over 30,000 downloads, but it's only rated two stars. Another one is friendfilter.io. This is more in line with what you're describing. In addition to allowing, allowing users to see who has unfriended you, it allows you to see who's engaging with your posts and easily remove people who aren't engaging with your posts. The listener may not know this, but you were limited to having 5,000 friends on Facebook and know of people who have hit that limit and can no longer add friends as a result. And yeah, if you could curate your list to those who are most engaged, then that makes sense. Friendfilter.io, they have a pro version. They charge $7.50 per month, which is right in line, right smack dab in the middle of the pricing range that you had suggested, Dave. So your intuitive sense is, is spot on here. Yeah, you could definitely, you know, there's there's that strategy we've probably talked about a few times. Like you said, you got an app, it's got 30,000 users, it's got two stars. There you go. Perfect opportunity. You got 30,000 users right there. If you can make a three-star app, right? Four-star or five-star app. Yeah, and clearly people wanted that app and they're not happy with it. I mean, that in itself is usually a very good sign of a great product to create. Clearly, people are purchasing it, grabbing it, using it, et cetera. Go ahead and dig through those reviews and find out what it is they don't like. Now create that app, but fix that problem. Yeah. Reviews right here. Jill Harrison says, doesn't work in groups, only on personal friends. Okay. Can you create a feature where it works in groups? Uh, Gerd Rube of the Key West Ac Acoustic Rock 01 says you cannot delete the most inactive friends because it only shows the 3,429 most active friends. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They're just begging you for certain features, right? This comment, I'll just say from one more here, from Lemon Popsicle that says 100% not working. You can't really work with that. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> How to, how to improve. But yeah, interesting comments. Another option that we've we've already covered it, not to be too redundant, but it's been a few episodes since we touched upon this. You can go try to find the creator of that app and offer to buy it from them for a modest fee. And then you already have the user base and then you can just start improving it or adding whatever features you want without having to do as much marketing as you would have had to starting from scratch. Yeah. 
looking at this business model, there are a couple of pitfalls that somebody should be aware of slash think about. And the first thing is, is that anytime you create an app that's dependent on somebody else's platform, you are a bit vulnerable. For example, what if Facebook changes something where your program or plugin was using this access point or this node, and all of a sudden the node's not there anymore? The plugin just shuts down. It doesn't work. Creating a Chrome plugin is a much safer way of doing it because it's their web browser that's accessing it. And usually there's a lot less chance that Facebook's going to mess with it. But if you create like an external software that's then trying to connect into somebody's Facebook, there's a good chance that Facebook snaps their fingers and something happens. And now your program can't access the information of that person anymore. So if you ever build a software that's dependent on somebody else's software or platform or whatever, you're always vulnerable to that. So keep that in mind. That's why I like the simplicity of the Chrome plugin. One of the ways that you can reduce your risk with the platform there is if you're building for multiple platforms, like you can copy this for LinkedIn and Instagram is still in the Facebook ecosystem, but TikTok, you know, I'm, not, I'm not on TikTok, but things like that, you can, uh, it's unlikely that all of them- not on TikTok because he can't, he can't dance. That's why I can't dance. I will dance off with you as soon as I meet you in person, Ethan. Three, two, one, dance <laughs> off. <laughs> so, with regards to pitfalls, I'd say that's one thing to to consider. The second thing too is is that when you look at that business model that the other plugin had, they may not do it, not because they've chosen not to, but because they're not capable of doing it. And that's another thing you may want to look into. Um, at case in point, like with our software. Uh, publisher rocket we're beholden to amazon and a lot of amazon information that being said there's a lot of stuff that my users constantly ask for and it's just not doable because amazon does not make that information open or privy there's no way to gain it or access it sorry can't do it so sometimes when you're looking at these programs and you see people claiming well it needs to do this there might be a chance that there's just no way to do it so keep that in mind yeah, that, that is a good general point. I think we've talked about this a bit in the LinkedIn world, at least. LinkedIn lost a big case where a third-party scraping type tool was allowed to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, so there is some legal precedent to uh, have a tool like this in the LinkedIn world that you're less likely to be challenged in court because, because of that ruling. Yeah, another another moat you have here potentially goes back to something I brought up earlier. If you do pick up another app or you do build an audience through the app that you build, that audience is something you can try to think a few steps ahead. If I do get some sort of an issue with the platform itself, maybe you already start adding other types of software and plugins and things that you start marketing to the same audience. And now, even though you've lost a certain access point, you still have this user base and you don't have to throw away all of the relationship that you built with them. Yeah. I would say, you know, one of the key or cardinal rules that I have with my software teams is always be adapting. It's called the ABBA rule. Always find a way. Uh, the moment that you think your software is doing great, think about how it can go wrong. Plan for it. That's one incredible way to deepen your moat, as we've talked about, around your castle so as to protect it. Even more so if you're dealing with a company like Facebook or Amazon or what have you. One other thing that I really like about this idea, especially for people that are just starting, is I love when a business idea can start small but has absolute room for growth. So let's say you just start with Facebook and it's, you could coin some phrase of like who unfriended me.com or something like that, that, right? First off, like just starting with Facebook, 
And just a simple plugin that does that, that's a great start to validate your idea. We're not talking about millions of dollars that need to be poured in to then figure out if you're right or wrong. This is like a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand to figure out if this is something really cool and you can really grow this. But then you can start doing things of either, like we talked about, adding more information you provide than just who unfriended you, or you can start adding all the different social media platforms out there. You can choose to grow it. So I love it when a software idea has legs and potential to be successful on its own simplistic initial version, but clearly there's a path for absolute growth to make it even bigger. So you made a comment earlier, and I'd love to explore a little deeper. We don't have to apply it to this idea. You talked about being ready for what's going to go wrong, or right? you're trying to like think ahead for what's going to go wrong. Again, it could be from your existing businesses. Any examples of where you thought of things like that, or you didn't think of things like that, but you wished you had? What, what kind of lines are you, are you looking along to look for the things that could go wrong? Yeah, well, uh, for example, in one of my software, Publisher Rocket, uh, we pull a lot of data from Amazon itself. Okay, um, In this case, people use the software, they, they type something in, it comes back with a lot of data about what's selling on Amazon, what's trending, how much money are other books making, You know, what are the things that shoppers are looking for, all that's packaged in there. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we once had where Amazon started to kind of have a war against crawlers and scrapers. And the war wasn't against my software or my kind of company. What it was against was the fighting off DDoS, you know, brute force attacks or uh, some way to um, reduce the server loads, right? By all of these things that are attacking or crawling or pulling information. They were brilliant in the fact that they didn't just create one problem. They created this augmenting i usually don't like the word ai but it was like an ai that like always changed so my programmers would program it be like all right yep it works three days later it's broken again oh wait it's working again it's broken it was the most maddening thing because we never were able to like isolate and say here is the problem because when you can isolate the problem you can go around it and fix it well we wasted months of thinking we fixed it only to realize oh they're just dynamically changing this all the time well, it almost killed us because in those three months of trying to figure this out, we had sections of the program down and down hard, okay? And so what I started to do is say, instead of this real-time data collection where immediately we go pull the information now, instead what we should be doing is storing the data that we've collected over time so that we can now improve the accuracy of the program as well as have a fallback plan in case we go a month or two with something not working, we can pull historic historic data, infuse it with other information and have a continued product. It might not be as accurate as it was or using historical data actually made us accurate. The point though is by looking at that issue that we ran into and starting to look at our resources, we've actually created a much more stable, stronger and more accurate system. And we're still doing that today. We still ask ourselves, what if Amazon takes that away? What if they do that? And just in our process of trying to think through what we're going to do, it's helped us to actually make better features. So, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's useful. And I, if I were to pull out a theme from that too, it's like looking for patterns, right? If you the patterns that you've seen in the past can help you predict the future. Not that the exact same thing is going to happen again, but if you say 
if this pattern continues, how could I avoid, how could I sidestep it? Um, even if it's a good pattern, right? Like I see a good pattern, this keeps coming, but you know, what if this pattern disappears or something like that? Yeah, useful. Along those lines, you strike me, Dave, as someone who is at ease with that constant changing and that discomfort, right? You're not super harried. You're not stressed out. You're, you're just kind of chilling. You're like, yeah, you know, stuff breaks. We figure it yeah, out. Yeah. Like I said, it's my cardinal rule is ABBA, you know, always be adapting. So it, it, if you truly believe in that and you embody it, you know, it, it's a part of your team culture. And so that's what we do. I actually, though, I learned it when I was a nuclear engineer, we, um, we'd be running the reactor plant and uh, it'd be like late night shift. And, you know, the captain would always be like, Hey, I want them. I want your team studying, you know, always studying, when we're not, you know, in full operations. And so you tell a bunch of guys, hey, go study a reactor manual. Like they're going to be like, yeah, right, dude, you, you suck. So what I used to do is this competition and I would have, you know, monster drinks were back then were like super rare, you know, not super rare, but on, on the submarine, it was super rare. And I would tell them, all right, guys, whoever can theoretically and hypothetically melt down the reactor the fastest and tell me which way uh, they did it gets the monster drink. And so for the entire six hours, guys would be saying how they would go about trying to melt down the reactor. Now, let me tell you, it's an insane process. It requires taking down a whole bunch of systems. And we would sit there and we'd pick apart his, his analysis on, on how he'd do it by saying, ah, you forgot about that control though. Oh, that would have stopped you right there. Oh, this would have happened. Oh, hey, guess what? That would have caused shutdown on this. You would have lost control of that. So you can't do it. And we would literally have fun trying to pick apart the other person. Now, that process, and I know people are scared, like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? But it's kind of the same idea in the fact that when you start looking at, hey, how can we break this, okay? Um, all of a sudden, creativity just starts coming alive. In the process of breaking it, you start to think about how you can fix it, and you can also find your weaknesses. You And so, this is one of those mental exercises that I love doing with my team. And uh, I'm not going to curse, but we call it in the software world, we call it break crap hour, uh, where literally it's like, all right, guys, go to town and try to break the software. And everybody tries to break it. And in breaking it, they're like, oh, we should probably do that, by the way. Uh, so I can't break it. It's like, awesome. So, yeah, that reminds me. And I wish I knew all the full details of it, but I believe it was someone like Colin Powell and, and the number was 10. It might even be a hundred. And he was saying when he wants to go into a project and he wants it to be successful, he wants to have like 10 times the resources that you would actually, he thinks you would actually need to be successful or maybe even a hundred times. Right. But you can see how that kind of thing can go in lockstep with what you're talking about. Uh, by doubling down on the amount of resources that you have or being very careful about the degree of the problems that can happen, not like what are the problems in the moment, but what is the broad swath of all these potential problems that could exist. Now, once you've developed a multiple of the resources that you thought you need, those things are much more manageable. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. Not that I've ever successfully been able to pull this off, <laughs> but I always think of it in, in my mind when taking on a project. I think it's really easy to under-resource yourself, especially when you're on a budget. And the interesting thing about the way you described it, Dave, is when you're talking about the resources, you at the same time talk about going after this at the lean approach, and you have a very direct uh, path to profitability with this idea that you've shared and just a very focused way of approaching it. And there's some tension there with building up this big cachet of resources and being able to 
uh, know exactly what's going to happen or have all these people that can help you to, uh, to fix things. So I guess I'm curious how you think about that tension. So one of the things I like doing with my team is I also create rules and I'm kind of a jokester. So I call it the uh, nine rules to bodaciousness. And so the ABBA rule is rule number one. Um, but having these kind of rules helps kind of keep, keep kind of the culture as well as empower people to make decisions. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that, that making that rule number one, and by the way, I love talking in rules. Uh, you know, I'm like, Hey, make sure you do rule number three or Hey, great job on rule number seven. Um, you know, it really makes people actually know what the rules are and speak in the rules. And it kind of helps us all to stay focused and kind of keep that same direction. So, uh, rule number one is ABBA rule. Number two is respond to everything as if it's going to be posted on the internet for everyone to see. That's, that's something that, that is important with my support team. And by the way, if you're in, if you're in software, oh man, you better have your support down. You know, <laughs> the other rule number three is uh, default to generosity. That also helps empower people to know that they'll never be wrong. You know, if they do right. the most generous thing, they'll only be wrong if they don't. Um, it might not right. have been the right decision, but I won't hit you on it because you did the generous thing. So again, it's, it's these ways to empower people to make decisions, but yeah. And then on top of that, I'd love to see a list of those rules. If you have them published, somewhere. I can, I could also rattle them, rattle them off too. We have, so we have the nine rules for the regular team. And then I have my leadership rules. Okay. So one of them is if it's not the best, we won't publish it. There's no price to our integrity. Take 15 minutes to try to solve a problem before asking someone for help. We are educational PG nerds. Proactively communicate your deadlines, strong opinions loosely held, and respond fast and respond last. That's to the general, to the leadership team. Champion rule number three, which is if it's not the best, we, we won't publish it. Uh, number two is a reiteration of always be adapting, ABBA. Three, proactively own and prosecute problems and opportunities. Four, build solid and useful systems and SOPs. Five, if it costs greater than $300 or reoccurring adds up to 300 annually, requires my permission. Six, mistakes aren't a problem, but not learning from them is. Seven, ability is important, but dependability is critical. And where is that thou shalt not commit adultery? Uh, we are educational PG nerds. <laughs> ah, and that one came, that one came because somebody <laughs> wrote an article for Kindlepreneur and they literally put in there, when reading this or something like that, the loins will become ablazed. And we're like, what the, no, <laughs> okay. no, no, no. That is not Kindlepreneur, man. So we, we created rule number six. It's also named after that person that wrote that. Uh, I won't say the name, but. Yeah, I have a follow-up question. Maybe Chris does too. And unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon. But question is, because you run seven organizations, right? Or you have seven different things that are going on. You said businesses. Do you have the same rules for all of them? Do you have to come up with unique ones for each one? Um, how do you manage that? For the ones that I'm more directly involved in the human resources component of it, uh, I just use the same rules as well as the same templates for reports that I expect to receive, you know, same systems. However, though, there's like certain companies where I'm more of a, I'm like a one third owner and I'm there just to, you know, receive the paycheck. <laughs> um, uh, and then there's others where I'm there on a consulting role. You know, so I would say four out of the seven, my same rules apply to everybody and same templates are used three out of the seven. I'm really there to give my perspective help. Useful stuff. 
except for the fact that Chris is going to subject me to a list of 15 rules by the end of next week. Run with the podcast. It's going to have about 25 (laughs) rules before the next episode. (laughs) No, I, I would love to nerd out more on this, but we are coming up on time here. I think the idea that you shared, it's surprising in its simplicity and how you know, brilliant it actually is and, and how uh, well I think that it would work. Didn't expect it, honestly. When I, when I saw the form submission come through, we talked about unfriending Facebook friends, uh, but thinking about just underneath the surface, everything that you shared, really appreciate yeah, that, Dave. I would say just to kind of recap on that idea, I think it's a really good opportunity for somebody who has a following or who's in social media. I think it's a great software opportunity because it could be very low cost, a very easy entry. Um, it has the expansion for growth. Um, and just to recap too, it, you do have a couple of warnings and the fact that you're going to become dependent on other platforms, which makes things harder. But, um, if this is your first time jumping into software, it could be an amazing opportunity to really get your feet wet and to get involved. Uh, as for me, the reason why I don't do it is because I'm not much of a social media person. I don't have that following. I'd have to roll up my sleeves and work hard to go find those those potential customers and it's not in line with any of the business I'm working on. So anybody listening to this, it could be a wonderful opportunity for you. Well said, where can listeners go to learn more about what you're up to now? Well, my main website, kindlepreneur.com. I've got a contact page there where you can find out a little bit uh, about that. Uh, at some point, I will kick off my davechesson.com website where I'll talk about kind of my learning progress in running these businesses. But that's kind of like one of those dreams where you say you're going to do it and then you never get the time to do it. So I wouldn't hold me to that one. Well, if we take these rules that you have shared with us and publish them with full credit to you, of course, we will <laughs> kickstart our own publishing empire on for the Run With It podcast. It's been a pleasure, Dave. Catch you later on. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.